Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. You're listening to the Sira podcast from Qalam Institute. Before we get started on the podcast today, I had a very special message to share with everyone. If you've been listening to the Sira podcast, learning the life of the Prophet wasallam, and hopefully benefiting along the way as well, the next step in your journey of not only getting to know the Prophet wasallam, not only learning about how he lived his life, but also learning to live your life more like Him. The next step in that journey is to completely and totally immerse yourself into the life of the Prophet ﷺ. And there, in that environment, learn His life. That is what we call the Sira Intensive. Where for 10 days, we ask people to come out on to Dallas, Texas, uh, come down here, spend 10 days with us, where we pray together, we eat together, we stay in the same place together, we learn together, we discuss things together, and we laugh and we cry together, honestly. And we not only feel like we get to know the Prophet Wasallam, you feel like you have really fallen in love with the Prophet Wasallam, and by the time you leave, you have a better sense of how the Prophet Wasallam lived his life, and you're inspired to at least attempt to do so. And by the way, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that you meet some really cool people along the way and make some really awesome friends as well. So that's that experience is what we call the Sira Intensive. So Sira Intensive is coming up this year again. So I want everyone to head on over to SiraIntensive.com. Check it out. Sign up. Come join us for a life-changing experience. And also recommend it to family and friends. Jazakumullahu khairan. Uh, thank you very much for continuing to listen to the podcast, share it on with others, and without further ado, let's get started with this week's session. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Inshallah, uh, continuing with our study of the life of the Prophet Sallallahu the prophetic biography. Uh, first and foremost, I know that we have been on uh, hiatus for quite some time. Uh, but Alhamdulillah, after uh, taking some time, Inshallah, to just kind of uh, recuperating it back on track, uh, wanted to restart, Inshallah, uh, the class that we do here on a weekly basis. Um, and inshallah, similarly, um, for the folks who maybe listen uh, online or even follow along with the podcast and the recordings, inshallah, we can hopefully start making that available to them as well. So to get to uh, what we're going to be talking about today, inshallah, is that we, were, we left off in the ninth year of the life or, or the ninth year of hijrah, the ninth year of the... Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's residence in the city of Medina. So this is the ninth year of the residence in Medina, the ninth year of Hijrah, the ninth year of the Islamic calendar, if you will. Where we are exactly in that ninth year is not completely known, but overall this ninth year was a very fascinating time. And we had talked about this, this ninth year is known as Amul Wufud. Which means the year of the delegations. And there were a couple of other major events that occurred within this ninth year of Hijrah. One of the most notable of them is that the Prophet ﷺ, he sent the first group of Muslims to perform the Hajj. 
And this is known as Hajjul Islam. Hajjul Islam. Um, and we have talked about that. The other thing that this ninth year, uh, or and then of course the Prophet himself would perform the Hajj in the tenth year, Hajjatul Wida. The other thing that the ninth year is known for is that this is the year after Fathu Makkah. This is the year after the conquest of Makkah. Makkah came into the fold of Islam. What that means is that basically all of Arabia opened up to the idea of embracing Islam and coming into the fold of Islam. Because the, the fact of the matter was that there were many tribes who were weak. There were many tribes who uh, were very honestly interested in Islam. But they were also very afraid of how all of this was going to play out. Makkah was still against Islam. Ta'if was still against Islam. There was also, uh, the Romans had also made it known that they had an, anima, an animosity towards the Muslims as well. And so, while it is obviously doesn't sound very courageous, but in all honesty, it is also somewhat reasonable and understandable for a very weak group of people that they were afraid what the political fallout from this was going to be. And so many of them were held back from embracing Islam and coming to Medina and pledging their allegiance to Islam and to the Prophet ﷺ because they honestly just did not know how everything was going to play out. Once Makkah fell and Makkah came into the fold of Islam, Ta'if had basically backed away from fighting the Muslims as well. What had happened was they had locked themselves in the fortress, but they would later on then come to Medina and embrace Islam. And we talked about that. At this point in time, all of Arabia opened up to the idea of becoming Muslim. And so now they started flocking to Medina. And we're going to, we already in the previous uh, couple of sessions, we talked about the Wafad of Banu Tamim, the people of Banu Tamim, the tribe of Banu Tamim, coming and embracing Islam. And for the next couple of sessions, I'll try for the, uh, I'll make an effort so that it is not just too redundant. People came, became Muslim, went home. You know, there, there were some very unique interactions the Prophet ﷺ had with each group. And so while, of course, I'll mention, this group came, became Muslim, and then went back home, I will try to highlight within that group's interaction with the Prophet ﷺ, what were some unique things that we learned from there? So... The delegation that we're going to be talking about today is the delegation of Abdul Qais. Wafdu Abdul Qais. And Abdul Qais was the name of kind of the forefather of the tribe, the originator of the tribe, if you will. And the tribe became named after him. And that was very common. The Prophet ﷺ said, Ana Hashemigun. Ana Hashemigun. Hashim was the great-great-grandfather of the Prophet ﷺ. And so he said, I am a Hashemite. Alright? And so a lot of times, the tribe would be named after an ancestor. Okay? So this tribe of Abdul Qais, they came to Medina to become Muslim. This was a very small, humble, Bedouin tribe. They were very simple people. But they were very respectable and honorable people. And Imam Bukhari rahimahullah ta'ala, along with all the books of the seerah like Ibn Ishaq, Ibn Kathir and others, they mentioned the narration about when Abdul Qais became, came to uh, Medina and they embraced Islam, they became Muslim. 
First of all, it mentions that when they arrived in Medina, the Prophet ﷺ was very happy to see them. And the Prophet ﷺ said to them, مَرْحَبًا بِالْقَوْمِ غَيْرَ خَزَايَا وَلَنَّدَامَا Welcome to the people that will not be ruined and nor will they regret or lament anything. Meaning the Prophet ﷺ complimented them that they are very confident in their faith and they are very excited to embrace Islam and they will not regret this decision of becoming Muslim. There are two things that I'd like to mention specifically about this tribe of Abdul Qais coming and becoming Muslim. I mean, the, 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 the facts of it are very simple. This tribe came, the leader of the tribe whose name was Al-Ashaj, Ashaj Abdul Qais, he was with them. They came, they became Muslim, and then they went home. Those are the facts. But there are two specific things in the interactions that I think we can learn something from. The first thing that I'll mention is, which is mentioned by all the scholars of the seerah, Ibn Ishaq, Ibn Kathir, uh, Ibn Hisham, they all mention it. But many of the muhaddithun, the scholars of hadith, have also mentioned these narrations, such as Imam Bukhari, uh, Imam Ahmad, Imam al-Bayhaqi. They have all mentioned this as well. And what they've mentioned is that when the people of Abdul Qais, when they arrived in Medina to become Muslim, like I described previously, they were a simple people. They were Bedouin people. And they were very excited to become Muslim. They had been looking forward to seeing the Prophet ﷺ for quite some time. The narration mentions that when, uh, one of the narration mentions that the Prophet ﷺ, he saw some people in the distance. And they were riding really fast. The Prophet ﷺ said, سَيَطْلُعُ مِنْ هَاهُنَا رَكْبٌ هُمْ خَيْرُ أَهْلِ الْمَشْرِقِ some people are coming there from that direction and they are some of the best people. Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu said, well, if the Prophet sallallahu is saying that these are such awesome people, I should maybe go and welcome them. Istiqbal, I should go and welcome them. So Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu went out of Medina to welcome these people. There were 13 people in the delegation. And he asked them, who are you people? And they said, مِن بَنِي عَبْدِ الْقَيْسِ He then asked them, فَمَا أَقْدَمَكُمْ هَذِهِ الْبِلَادِ Why are you here? At-tijara? Did you come to do business? They said, no. And then he said to them, that you should know that the Prophet ﷺ قَدَّ ذَكَرَكُمْ آنِفًا فَقَالَ خَيْرًا The Prophet ﷺ said very nice things about you. That you are good people. So Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he says that when we got to Medina, when we got to the masjid and they asked, where is the Prophet sallallahu And I pointed at the masjid, he's in there. He says that, فَرَمَ الْقَوْمُ بِأَنفُسِهِمْ عَنْ رُكَابِهِمْ فَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ مَشَا وَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ هَرْوَلَا وَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ سَعَا حَتَى أَتَوْ رَسُولَهِ صَلَّى he said that some of them jumped off their animals, some of them jumped off their animals while the animal was still moving. It's kind of like, think about how, you know, kind of crazy that is. Right? Think about jumping out of a moving car. Or if you're riding a bike, you just kind of jump off the bike and let the bike go and just crash. Right? And it sounds kind of crazy, but you have to also have to understand and all of us can maybe at some level internalize this, 
imagine if you had the chance that you know sitting inside of that room is the Prophet ﷺ. I mean, I'd probably run somebody over, right? I wouldn't realize it. My elbow would connect with someone's head. I wouldn't even realize it, right? You don't, just think about the excitement in that moment. Think about the first time you went for Hajj or Umrah and you just wanted to go see the Kaaba and you got your luggage and they're telling you, check into your room, put your luggage up and then go to the Kaaba. And you're waiting there and they're taking a little too long to give you the keys to your room. What happens? You're like, you know what? Inshallah, this will be fine. They're like, no, 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 people will take your stuff here. I don't care. I'm not waiting a minute more. I'm, I want to go see the Kaaba. Right? So it's understandable their excitement. They get to see the Prophet so they started jumping off their animals and some of them were walking fast. Some of them were straight up harwala. Some were running, racing. And they ran into the masjid. They saw the Prophet ﷺ and they just basically like pounced the Prophet ﷺ. They grabbed the hand of the Prophet ﷺ and they started kissing his hand. The leader of the tribe, his name was Al-Ashaj. Ashaj. He came along and he saw all of his compatriots, he saw all of his friends jumping off moving animals and the animals are just kind of wandering about in circles and their bags are falling on the ground and they're just running in. And Ashaj basically came up, he got off of his camel, he tied up his camel, then he chased down everybody else's camels and then he tied up their camels as well. And then he opened up his bag and he looked at himself. We've been traveling through the desert for like four days. You can imagine how somebody looks and how they smell. And he's like, I don't want to meet the Prophet like this. So then he took out some nice clothes and he mentions he had two white like cloths, a lower garment, upper garment that were white. And so he took them out and he asked, where's some water? And they told him there's water over there. And he went and he washed and cleaned himself up. And then he changed into nice clothes. And then he came. And one of the narrations mentions that when these, what was going on on the other side, these people ran in, pounced the Prophet ﷺ, grabbed his hand, started kissing his hand. Ya Rasulullah, Ya Rasulullah. And the Prophet ﷺ said that, where are you from? Introduce yourselves properly. And so we're from Abdul Qais. The Prophet ﷺ said, Man amirukum? Who's in charge amongst you? And they said, Ashaj. The Prophet said, well, where is he? Right, third person reference. He is out there. Where, where is he? Right, and they said that, well, he's out there. I think he's, somebody said, Ya Rasulullah, when the Sahaba said, I think we saw him. He was tying up everyone's camel and taking care of everyone's belongings and things like that. The Prophet said, have a seat. We will wait for him. And then finally when Ashaj came, the Prophet welcomed him and made room for him right next to him. He said, please have a seat here. And he sat down and he shook the hand of the Prophet and kissed the Prophet's hand. And then the Prophet spoke to the people and welcomed the people. And the Prophet at that time, he made the very famous comment that is preserved within all the books of hadith. <clears throat> The Prophet ﷺ said, Inna fika khaslatain yuhibbuhum Allahu. You, Ashaj, friend, you have two qualities, and God loves these qualities very, very much. And he said, What are those two qualities, Ya Rasulullah? And he said, Al hilmu wal anat. Al hilm 
والانات حلم in the Arabic in English is often translated as forbearance what that actually means حلم or forbearance what that means is for someone to be able to see a bit further ahead for someone to have like some vision and the patience to execute that vision that is حلم it is part sabr and it is part intelligence it's like a combination a marriage of intelligence and patience where you can see the long term and then you have the patience to follow through with it anat is the ability to remain calm under pressure anat is the ability to remain calm under pressure and he said you have these two qualities you're you're a very very cool customer very a very calm individual and he said allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves that and appreciates that about you and so that was one thing i wanted to mention these are the gems the prophet sallallahu would give when these people would come to visit the second thing is the people they specifically presented a question to the prophet sallallahu and they said that we live further away and in one narration they specifically talk about that there are sometimes certain conflicts with some of the tribes that live between us and Medina so it's not always possible for us to come and visit you we're only able to come and visit you when they're not fighting particularly like during the sacred months al-ashhur al-hurum we're able to visit you during those times so we can't come and see you as frequently as we would like so ya rasulullah they said fahaddithna bijumalin min al-amri in amilna bihi dakhalna al-jannah give us some comprehensive advice that we can act on if we're not able to come and see you and if we act on that advice we will go to paradise give us some good advice the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam he act, you know he 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 obliged them and the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said amrukum bi arba'in wa anhakum an arba'in I will tell you to do four things and I will tell you to avoid four things. The four things I tell you to do, he said al-imanu billah. Number 1 is believe in God. And then he asked him, "Hal tadruna ma al-iman billah? Do you know what believing in Allah means? Shahadatu alla ilaha illallah wa anna Muhammadar Rasulullah. Testify that there is no one worthy of worship but Allah and that Muhammad is a messenger of Allah." And then He actually gave them five advices. The first one iman he almost kind of mentioned it as come into the religion, come into the faith by accepting Islam. Then there are four things you should do after becoming a Muslim. The four things you should do are number 1 iqamus salah. Establish the prayer. Number 2 ita'uz zakat. Give charity. Right? Tu'khadhu min aghniya'ihim wa tu'addu ila fuqara'ihim. that wealth a modicum of wealth right not all of wealth a modicum of wealth should be taken from the wealthy and distributed amongst the poor number 3 was sawmu ramadan fast in the month of ramadan this will develop that discipline within you number 4 wa an tu'tu min al min al maghanimi al khumusa and number 4 is from the wealth that you might acquire as spoils of war when there are wars or battles 
one-fifth of that, 20% of that, must also be given in charity. Okay, so this, this is the advice that he gave them. And then he said, and I tell you to abstain or refrain from four things. And what's very interesting is, the four things he told them to avoid, all four things are associated with one another. He mentioned four things, الدبا والنقير والحنتم والمزفت. And all four of these things are the names of different containers. Dubba is a container that was made out of a hollowed out squash. They would hollow out like a vegetable or a fruit that had a hard shell. Um, and then they would do it, they would apply wax or grease inside of it and dry it out and it would become a thermos. Naqeer was very similar, they would make it out of wood. Hantam was also very similar, they would carve it out of something and Muzaffat is also the same, right? These are all names of four containers. Why did he tell them to avoid four containers? These four containers before Islam were primarily used for storing, transporting, and consuming wine, alcohol, intoxicants. And so what the Prophet ﷺ was telling them is that a part of Islam, obviously, they were going to read the Qur'an, a part of Islam is you have to give up wine, you have to give up alcohol. But the thing about giving up alcohol, especially if it's well ingrained within a person or their lifestyle or in their culture, in their society, is that it's not that easy to give up something like that. And so what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to take extra precautionary measures. And even the containers, the thermoses, the flasks that you used to use for alcohol, don't even use, throw away those flasks as well. Right? There's a time and a place for frugalness, right? Well, it's a perfectly good container. We can use it for water. Practice your frugality elsewhere. Right now, what you need to understand is this container is representative, symbolic of a previous sinful lifestyle. Don't indulge in it. Distance yourself from it. And so that was the advice. And in fact, this is very in line with what the Qur'an says. The Qur'an commands us in Surah Al-Isra, Surah number 17, Zina, fornication. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, do, do not even go near fornication. Stay completely away from it. Don't even go to the place where it occurs. Don't associate with the people that maybe were a part of that sinful lifestyle. And so this is the Qur'anic advice and the prophetic advice of how you remove sins from your lifestyle. That you have to decide to just give up it and everything around it. Alright? So this is essentially, in essence, the interaction of the Prophet ﷺ with the people of Abdul Qais. Um... The last thing, the last two small details that I'll mention here is number one, the first Jumu'ah prayer that was ever established outside of the city of Medina was established for the people of Abdul Qais. It was established for them because they lived so far away. And the whole tribe accepted Islam. The Prophet ﷺ, and they had some knowledgeable people amongst them. The Prophet ﷺ sent some Sahaba there, and he told them, establish the Jumu'ah prayer for yourselves. 
All right? Because up until that point, Mazinabawi used to have Jumu'ah. There were a couple of other masjids nearby, like the Masjid of Banu Salima, the people who lived on the outskirts of Medina, they used to pray Fajr and Aisha on their own in their little masjid because they were so far out from Medina. Um, another masjid was the Masjid of Quba, the suburb of Medina. They used to pray there five times a day. But those two places were close enough that for Jumu'ah, for Friday prayer, they still used to come to Mazinabawi. Of course. If you could walk an extra 30 minutes but pray behind the Prophet wouldn't you rather do that? Right? So they used to come pray with the Prophet in Majinabui. But these people were the first people that were given the license to perform Jumu'ah prayer in their town. And so this was the first satellite Jumu'ah outside of Medina that was established. The second thing I wanted to mention here that is very interesting. In the Sahih of Imam Bukhari, Ummu Salama radiallahu ta'ala anha, she said, mentioned something very interesting. She says that the, the, this delegation of Abdul Qais, they arrived in Medina when they ran into the masjid, they arrived in Medina right as soon as we were finishing the Dhuhr prayer. The Prophet said, Salaamu alaykum wa rahmatullah, Salaamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. He finished the Dhuhr prayer and these people walked in. The Prophet ﷺ had a habit. His sunnah was, he would always pray two sunnah, two rak'at, rak'atan, after dhuhr. He would always pray two sunnahs after dhuhr, consistently. Right, he used to pray these two. وَاذَبَ عَلَيْهَا النَّبِي However, when these people came, now what do you do? Right, conventional logic, right, would dictate that you would tell these people, why don't you wait? I'm going to pray two rakahs and then we'll talk. But Umm Salama radiallahu ta'ala anha says, أَخَّرَ الرَّكَعَتَيْنِ بَعْدَ الظُّهْرِ بِالسَّبَبِ يَوَفْتِ عَبْدِ الْقَيْسِ The Prophet did not pray those two rakat when he normally would after the dhuhr, but rather he entertained his guests. He entertained them and he prayed the two rakahs later. After he had settled them in and told them, you know, make, why don't you go and take some rest and things like that. Then he prayed his nawafil. And that's just a very powerful reminder of that there is the issue of prioritization within our religion. There is the issue of priority within our religion. How do we prioritize things? That our ibadah is extremely important. But in ibadah, there are fara'id and there are nawafil. There are things that are mandatory. We don't compromise those. And then there are optional deeds. And those are very important. Those are very good. We should be motivated to do those things. But then there is the akhlaq and the character of Islam. And there are other obligations. Family, the rights of family upon you. The rights of your neighbors upon you. The hospitality of a guest. These are very centrally important things when it comes to the character of Islam and Muslims. And those things should not be overlooked. Those things should not be put aside. In fact, if it comes down to choosing between optional worship and the character, these types of things, right? Entertaining your guests, tending to family members, whatever the case may be. Then the the akhlaq and the character, the mandates of akhlaq and character take preference and precedence over optional worship. 
There's another narration along these same lines from the life of the Prophet that is fascinating. Baraka, Ummu Ayman, Baraka, is one of the women who raised the Prophet since he was a child. She raised him. He used to refer to her as his mother. He had a lot of love for her. And it mentions that even towards the end of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, he used to go, they would see each other quite often in the masjid and things like that, but he specifically once a week used to go and visit her in her home. He used to go visit her at her home at least once a week. And sometimes when he would go, and you know how mothers are, it didn't matter how old the Prophet ﷺ was, when he would go to visit her, she would make food for him. And sometimes when he would go and she would make food and she would put the food down, he would say, I am fasting. In the Sa'im, I am fasting. And the narration mentions that Ummu Ayman would look at the Prophet ﷺ and she would say, no, you're not. La. Just no. I don't accept it. And the Prophet ﷺ would laugh and he would say, Bismillah, and he would eat her food. He would leave the fast. Because it was optional. It wasn't Ramadan. It was optional. But here's a woman that's like your mother. She raised you since you were a little boy. She loved you like her own. She raised you as one of her own. And she doesn't want to hear, I'm fasting. She made food for you. Even though she's so old and elderly, she made food. And the Prophet ﷺ taught us through his character, his beautiful, noble character, that you don't hurt her feelings. As small of a thing as it may be. But you don't do that. You don't say no to her. You leave your optional fast, but you take care of her. And here similarly we see, these are guests who have arrived in Medina. The Prophet ﷺ said, I can pray my nafil. It's not fard, fard was already done. I can pray my nafil later. But these are guests. They came, they rode for days through the desert to meet me. And when they finally get here, and they're so excited, they're jumping off of moving animals. I'm going to be like, stop, sit quietly. When I'm done, I'll call you. That's not what you do. And again, that's what we learn from studying the life of the Prophet that's why it's so important for us to study the life of the Prophet That's why it's such a valuable and essential um, exercise, very honestly. It's learning, but it's also like this spiritual exercise. Challenges us intellectually and emotionally, and most importantly, spiritually. To elevate ourselves, to be better, right? Uswatun hasana. That's why the Prophet ﷺ is called the ultimate role model. Because we can find an example in a role model in him. The next incident that I wanted to share here and talk about is a little bit of a more complicated issue. Um, there are two parts to this particular story. The first one is, once again, um, Imam Bukhari, Ibn Kathir, Ibn Ishaq, 
many have mentioned this particular story. This story that I'm about to mention actually happens earlier. It happened about a year, a year and a half ago from where we are in the timeline. It did not happen in the ninth year. It actually happened in the earlier part of the eighth year. It did not happen in the ninth year. It happened in the earlier part of the eighth year. But I'm mentioning it here for a reason. Because there's a story about a man who was brought to Medina and he became Muslim. That's the essence of the story, but I'll tell you some detail about it. It's very beautiful. But the reason why I'm mentioning it here in the ninth year is because later on what would happen, he became Muslim in the beginning of the eighth year, early eighth year. He then went back to his people and many of his people became interested in becoming Muslim. And then his tribe came in the ninth year to become Muslim. So that's why I'm mentioning it together. The name of the person is Thumama. His name is Thumama. <clears throat> Abu Huraira narrates that the Prophet ﷺ had sent a group of Sahaba, like a cavalry, to the north. When they went to the north, they came across a man who belonged to a tribe called Banu Hanifa. Banu Hanifa. They, the man seemed like he was a bit confrontational or something like that. They ended up capturing the man. They came back to Medina and they brought him to Medina. Now what they did was Medina didn't have a prison, did not have a jail cell, nothing like that. right? Which is something to think about, but that's a different topic for another day. It's a very complicated issue, but something to think about. Medina did not have a single cell, prison, jail, nothing. Anyways... What they would do with people sometimes when they needed to be, you know, restrained, they would tie them to a pillar in the masjid. So they brought this man, Thumama, and they tied him to a pillar of the masjid. When the Prophet ﷺ saw him, he said, Ma indaka ya Thumama? What do we do with you? What should we do with you? And kind of jokingly, kind of said, What do you have to offer? He's tied up to a pillar, right? What does he have to offer? But he just kind of jokingly, like, what should we do with you? And so the man said, Indi khayrun ya Muhammad. I have a lot to offer. He said, In taqtulni, taqtul dhadamin. If you kill me, if you decide to execute me, then you are executing someone whose people will want retribution. They will want retribution. Alright? But... He said, But if you show kindness to me, you will have somebody who owes you something. You are showing kindness to someone who will not forget that kindness. If all you want is money though, then ask me, how much do you want? How much money would you like? The Prophet ﷺ just kind of smiled at him and he said, I'm going to let you think about this conversation. He just walked away. The next day the Prophet ﷺ said, and again, when they tied them to the pillar, that doesn't mean they just left them standing hungry and thirsty. They would like sit him down. And in fact, the people who were prisoners in Medina, they would oftentimes say that they used to feed us dates and bread they used to feed us dates and meat, excuse me, dates and meat, uh, I keep on getting confused. They would feed us bread and meat, khubz walaham. They would feed us bread and meat. 
and they themselves used to live off of tamar wama. They would they themselves used to live off of dates and they would give us bread and meat. They would drink water and they would give us milk. So he was taken care of. The next day the Prophet ﷺ came to him again and he said, Ma inda kyathumama. Alright, let's try this again. What do you have to offer, O Thumama? And again he gave the same response. The Prophet ﷺ smiled at him, he walked away. He came to him the third day, Ba'dil Ghad. And again he asked him, Ya ma inda kyathumama? And he said, Indi ma laka. And now this time he didn't go into all the detail. He goes, look, I've already told you what I have. I don't really you know, want to go through all of it again. The Prophet said, okay. Utluqu thamama. Untie him. Go. Just untie him. You're free. You can walk right out. Thumama radiallahu ta'ala anhu, spoiler alert, he says, فَانْطَلَقَ إِلَىٰ نَخْلَىٰ قَرِيبٍ مِّنَ الْمَسْجِدِ إِلَىٰ نَخْلِ قَرِيبٍ مِّنَ الْمَسْجِدِ فَاخْتَسَلَ ثُمَّ دَخْلِ الْمَسْجِدِ He went out to where there was kind of some date palms, like an orchard. And he went there, you know, they would, they, what they would do is when they needed to bathe or something, they would go where there was an orchard, they would tie like a sheet between two trees. And he took a shower, he washed and cleansed himself, put on a clean pair of clothes. And then he came back into the masjid, sat down in front of the Prophet he became Muslim on the spot. And then he said something so profound. He said, Ya Muhammad, Wallahi ma kana ala wajhil ardi wajhun abgada ilayya min wajhik. Faqad asbaha wajhuka ahabbul wujuhi ilayya. He said, I swear to God, O Muhammad, there was nobody I disliked more than I used to dislike you. But now there's nobody I admire and respect and love as much as I respect and love you. And then he said, there was no deen, no religion that I found distasteful more than the religion that you teach. Now I recognize and realize after my couple of days in Medina, there's no religion that I have seen that is more beautiful than y'all's religion. And then he said that your city was the last place that I ever wanted to visit. And now I don't want to leave your city. And then he told the Prophet ﷺ, Here's my issue. When your people snatched me, when they arrested me, I was actually going for Umrah. But it was like the Umrah of, you know, before Islam, the Jahili, the Shirk Umrah. But I was going for Umrah. So the Prophet, so he said, what should I do now? What am I supposed to do? The Prophet told him, you know, you know, mashallah, it's very good to hear that you're a Muslim and that that's how you feel. You should go do your Umrah. So he went to Mecca and when he went there to go do Umrah, someone kind of noticed you know, the way he was doing things and maybe got into a conversation and realized, and realized that he had become Muslim. So someone told him, Sabota, you left the religion of your forefathers. You've joined Muhammad and his band. And so... <clears throat> He said, Lakin aslamtu ma'a Muhammad. He said, No, I have not abandoned the religion of my forefathers. I haven't joined Muhammad's gang. I became Muslim. I have submitted to God in the way Muhammad has shown us, showed us. And then he said, Wallahi, la ya'atikum min al yamamati habbatu hintatin hatta ya'dhana fiya Nabi Sasara. You want to know what happens when you get in my face? He says that. 
a lot of the wheat, the flour, the wheat, that used to come to Mecca, used to come from Yamama, where this man Thumama was from. He said, I swear to God, not a single grain of wheat will be delivered to Mecca anymore until Muhammad says it's okay. Nevertheless, <clears throat> as I mentioned, Thumama became a Muslim. He goes back to Yamama, where he's from, all right? And when he gets back there, about a year or so, year, year and a half goes by, and he convinces many people in his tribe, Banu Hanifa, to become Muslim. And then he motivates them to form a delegation, a caravan, let's go to Medina, and let's meet the Prophet So they get ready and they say, okay, that sounds good. They arrive there, the people become Muslim. When they arrive there, the Prophet ﷺ, when they first arrive, the Prophet ﷺ asks them, <clears throat> is there anyone else? Is there anyone else? And they say, yeah, actually, we drew lots about like who would have to stay back with the camels and the animals and things like that and watch our stuff. And so one of us is back there watching all of the stuff. And the Prophet ﷺ said, well, you should invite him in. Somebody else should go and switch off with him. He says, I'm pretty sure he's not a terrible guy that you can't bring him in the masjid like he's some terrible human being where you wouldn't invite him into the masjid where I wouldn't want to meet him. Somebody else go switch off and invite that guy in. So they do that and they basically invite the guy in. This guy, his name is Musaylama. His name is Musaylama bin Habib. Okay? He's from the tribe of Yamama. He has not really said anything, you know, peculiar up to this particular point. He comes into the masjid. He sees the Prophet ﷺ. With the Prophet ﷺ is one of his companions by the name of Thabit ibn Qais ibn Shammas who was known as Khatibu Rasulullah He was kind of like the Prophet Wasallam's, you know, for lack of a better kind of example, almost like a press secretary for the Prophet The Prophet was not a pretentious person. If you wanted to find him, just go into the masjid. He was just sitting there. But the, what, the reason why the Prophet kind of needed an official spokesperson was there were delegations that were arriving every few days. So he almost needed someone who was appointed by the Prophet to receive people if the Prophet was not there. For instance, if a delegation arrived at night, he's already home. So there needed to be somebody who could officially go and receive them as a representative of the Prophet That the Prophet will be with you in about in shortly. Till then, I am appointed to welcome you. Right? And that person was Thabit bin Qais bin Shammas. He's a Sahabi. The Prophet ﷺ was with, with this companion, Thabit, his assistant. And this man, Musaylama, he comes into the masjid. The Prophet ﷺ was such a common person, sitting on the ground. And the Prophet ﷺ was holding like a little, like a twig. 
like a little stick, like a branch of a tree. You're just kind of holding it, just, you know, just sitting with it, kind of fiddling with it. A common person. The Prophet sometimes when he would draw things in the sand, he would do it with like a twig or something. So he just had a twig, he's just kind of fiddling with it. And when this man Musaylama comes in, the Prophet وسلم, he in, you know, tells him that you know, your people have come and become Muslim and so I wanted you to kind of get the chance to sit and you know, also have a conversation about Islam and Iman. And he says to the Prophet وسلم, that I have an offer for you. He says to the Prophet ﷺ, the thing that has come to you has also come to me. The thing that has come to you, inni qad ushriktu fil amri ma'ak. I, God has also spoken to me. I have also been given prophethood along with you. Right? Huh? Yeah? You know when somebody tries to do that? And the Prophet says, what? And he says that, okay, okay, how about this? Like, like this has already been agreed to, of course. Right? He's a con artist. He says, okay, 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 how about this? I will follow you right now. You be in charge. And you seem elderly. You seem like you're getting older. The Prophet was like 62 years old. You seem like you're getting older. So you're in charge right now. You be in charge amongst the two of us right now. You be in charge. I'll follow you. Then when you die, then I'll take over. Makes sense, right? Right? The Prophet ﷺ is like, well, what is this strange creature? Right? Where did this guy come from? The Prophet ﷺ says, لو سألتني هذا لما أعطيتكها he said, if you were to ask me for this twig, I would not give it to you. You talk about prophethood? You talk about khilafah? Are you crazy? And the Prophet wasallam, he tells him that, no, we're not, that is not up for discussion. The man, he gets quiet and they leave, the people they leave there. When he arrives back at home where they live, Yamama, he restarts this entire situation. And what he basically does is he starts up this whole campaign of how he's a prophet. He starts making up fake verses of the Qur'an, like starts trying to copy the Qur'an and make up fake verses, um, he starts claiming prophethood, starts calling himself a prophet, he assumes the name of Rahman, which is, shows you how jahil and ignorant he is. He assumes the name of Rahman, and then he call he people who unfortunately simple people who start to believe in him, they start calling him Rahmanul Yamama. The Rah- there's Muhammad in Medina, and there's Rahman in Yamama. 
and he starts calling himself a prophet and he starts developing a little bit of a following. It's not much at first. It's said to be about 70 some odd people. He develops a little bit of a following. He leaves the Banu Hanifa, the tribe that he's actually from. And on the outskirts of the tribe, he establishes a little camp for himself and he starts up a little group over there. And the Prophet Sallallahu Wasallam he the and and just to kind of kind of follow through with the you know uh where it eventually goes eventually what happens is that he has a right hand man who he calls his muaddin he's got an assistant who he calls his muaddin and that muaddin also starts to claim prophethood and he becomes kind of like an assistant prophet to this fake prophet fake assistant prophet to this fake prophet, right? Um, assistant to the fake prophet, not assistant fake prophet, right? And then there's another woman amongst his followers who also starts to say, I'm having dreams and visions and I know the future. And she starts talking crazy and he goes, this is perfect, we should marry each other. And then he marries her. Um, you know, fantastic, right? But ultimately... Ultimately what happens, um, and, and so I'll get to this point in just a moment, he eventually sends a follow-up letter to the Prophet ﷺ. You know that offer he made in person? And the Prophet ﷺ just assumed he's probably mentally not stable and just kind of waved him off, brushed him off. But then he goes there and he develops a little following of like 70, 80 people and then marries this you know, other false prophet and he's got and another assistant fake false prophet and all of this. And so he's kind of whatever. He sends a follow-up letter to the Prophet ﷺ. And he sends two of his followers with the letter. And the letter says, مِن مُسَيْلَمَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ إِلَى مُحَمَّدْ رَسُولِ From Musaylama, the Messenger of God, to Muhammad, the Messenger of God. Messenger of God, Messenger of God, huh? Yeah, right? He's still like, you know, doing this thing. And then he says, سَلَامٌ عَلَيْكَ Peace be unto you. أَمَّا بَعَدُ فَإِنِّي قَدْ أُشْرِكْتُ فِي الْأَمْرِ مَعَكَ Same line. You and I, we share the same thing. فَإِنَّ لَنَا نِصْفَ الْأَمْرِ He's a genius. So he goes, so then, half of prophethood is for you, half of prophethood is for me. And apparently his wife and his assistant. And he says, وَلِقُرَيْشْ نِصْفَ الْأَمْرِ So he says that, basically, your people Quraysh, you know, when you die... I should take over half and your people should take over half. We should split up the Islamic kingdom. But he says, But the Quraysh, they're not good people. So I'm going to have to take over all of it. So this was the letter. Two men brought the letter. The Prophet ﷺ asked the two of them that... And this letter, by the way, came at the end of the 10th year. So it came a year later. Abdullah bin Masood radiallahu ta'ala anhu says that the Prophet ﷺ asked them, Atashhadani anni Rasulullah? What do you two believe? Do you believe that I'm the Messenger of Allah? They said, Nashadu anna Musaylama Rasulullah. No, we believe in Musaylama. The Prophet ﷺ said, Amantu billahi wa rasulihi. 
He says, I believe in Allah and the true messengers of God. And he said, Had it been permissible to execute messengers, you too would be the first two. Right? But we don't do that. And that's why Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, فَمَضَتَ السُنَّةُ فَمَضَتَ السُنَّةُ بِأَنَّ الرُّسُلَ لَا تُقْتَلُ that is where we learn the law, the prophetic law, the prophetic injunction that messengers, no matter how, how offensive of a message a courier, a messenger may bring. Not messengers of Allah, but like a messenger from a king or an opposing party or an opposing ruler. No matter how offensive the message may be, we do not kill messengers. We don't do that. It's against the instruction of the Prophet Because the Prophet did not harm these two men. He said, okay... I got the letter, and then the Prophet ﷺ sent a letter back with them, and the letter was very simple. It said, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. A stupid guy, Musaylama, forgot to write Bismillah, right? So, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Min Muhammad Rasulillahi ila Musaylama tal kadhab. The Prophet ﷺ had dictated the letter. Um, usually it was Ali radiallahu ta'ala that he would dictate it to, and it said, From Muhammad the Messenger of God to Musaylama the liar. Salamun ala manittaba'al huda. Peace is upon whoever follows the true guidance. Amma ba'du fa'inna al-arda lillah yurithuha man yasha'u min ibadihi wal-aqibatu lil-muttaqeen. He quoted the Qur'an. Allah, the Prophet said, You want to negotiate who's going to be in charge? This earth belongs to God, not to me. I am not going to give it to anybody. This earth belongs to God and God will put in charge of it whomsoever God wants. What you need to worry about is the life of the hereafter. Because in the life of the hereafter, only those people will prosper who were conscious of Allah in this life. End of letter. And the Prophet sent this back with them. So this is kind of the story of this tribe, Banu Hanifa, who became Muslim. But unfortunately, this really strange and eventually deranged individual, Musaylamah, false prophet came along with them. Um, and ultimately, I won't get into the details of you know, what happens to Musaylimah, but essentially what occurs is during the uh, battle of Yamama, right, during the time of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, there's eventually a war. Musaylimah, because of the the passing of the Prophet ﷺ, unfortunately some people get confused and they, Musaylimah ends up getting a few hundreds of followers. And eventually they start raising an army and want to launch an attack against Medina. So Abu Bakr gets an army of the Sahaba together and they decide to go in, put out this fitna and to meet this army. The battle ensues, the battle occurs, and what's very interesting is that Wahshi, the man who had, who had killed, assassinated, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu, who was very beloved to the Prophet ﷺ, before Wahshi was Muslim, he had killed Hamza, he said, he came out of, he had become Muslim since then, and he had kind of retired. He lived in obscurity and he said, I came out of retirement and went back into the battlefield because I said, I killed the best person. I needed to redeem myself by killing the worst. 
And it actually says that the same dagger that he used to kill Hamza radiallahu ta'ala, he saved that dagger and he used that dagger to kill Musaylimah in the battlefield. And he ended up, uh, um, and the story itself is quite fascinating. When Musaylimah sees Wahshi, he just starts running. He gets terrified. He starts screaming and running. And Wahshi chases him down and takes care of him. But a follow-up to that, basically, all the people who followed, believed Musaylimah, they all end up converting to Islam, including his wife, right? The former false, fake prophet, whatever she was, she ends up actually becoming Muslim. فَحَسُنَ إِسْلَامُهَا She actually becomes a really, really devout, good Muslim. And his mu'adhin, the assistant to the fake prophet, he also becomes Muslim. And he also becomes a real sincere practicing Muslim. Um, so that's nevertheless the story, but uh, that was another delegation that came to visit and meet with the Prophet Wasallam. I'm going to go ahead and stop the session uh, for here this week, inshallah. And uh, going forward, uh, we will continue. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to learn the life of the Prophet and to be more like the Prophet. Jazakumullah khairan. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi, subhanakallah wa bihamdik. Nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta. Assaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk.